Um, so we are in Acts. We are now in chapter 5. We are in the section where there's just been a, a, a terrible attack on the unity and purity of the church at the end of 4 through 5. And the, the main characters there were Ananias and Sapphira. And hypocrisy was, was coming into this, this young church. And we see God protecting his church and purifying the church, purging out the corruption, the pollution. Him protecting this church that was still untaught, uh, only, only months at most old, yet growing and we just see, so we're just seeing what God is doing in the early church as, as the church is building here. And in this section tonight, starting in verse 12, uh, through the end of the chapter, chapter 5, we see now another, uh, seg- another uh, uh, attack on the church. Can you close the door for me, Ron? Thanks, bud. Um, so that's, that's what we're going to be. But as, I hope that as you read Scripture, you react to Scripture. And that's what I do. When I was reading about the church and about uh, just what's happening here, this section particularly made me respond with, why would they respond like this? Why would the high priest and the Sadducees not see the evidence and, and just say, oh my goodness, right? Now, we've seen that already in, in Acts, but this one, I, I was just drawn to, to, one, to think of how could they not see, but then to remember my own heart and say, wait, I didn't see for a long time, too. And, and how could I see and understand and respond to God? Well, it had to be God stepping in. And so we're going to only cover about a third of this passage tonight and then remind ourselves about the grace of God and his salvation. And uh, so we'll get to that in a little bit. But I want to take us back to another scene that just amazes me in a bad way, not at what Christ did, but the response. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to, to kick off tonight, I'd like to go to John chapter 11. And this is really the turning point in the book of John as far as the response of the people uh, to Jesus. John chapter 11, I'm going to read a good chunk, all right? So we're going to read all the way up to verse 53. So this is a familiar story, but let's just walk through it here. So starting in verse 1 of John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. Bethany and her sister Mark crossed the valley from Jerusalem, very close. Uh, The village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Okay, so a a family that was well known to the early church and who were close, close friends with Jesus. So he, Lazarus was ill, so, so the sisters sent to him, meaning to Jesus, saying, Lord, him whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So we, with the stages set, right, we have the mortal illness of Lazarus. But then we see the intentional delay of Christ, okay? I'm not preaching through this passage, but I want to keep, you know, keep the framework going for our own selves here. So in verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. They weren't just friends. They were close, close friends. He loved them. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he ran to Jerusalem. No, it says he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. 
The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Right? So the day's, day's here and I've got to do work is what he's trying to say. And I'm going to go do what i got to do. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. What is he saying there? He's saying that Lazarus is dead, and I'm going to go raise him from the dead, but they don't get this, right? Because they're just like you and I. Who raises the dead? <laughs> Not a man. So they're still, they still don't understand who Jesus is. And that's okay, because we would have done the same thing. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest, taking rest in sleep. But Jesus, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. You're still not getting the point of who I am, but this has happened so that you can believe, because I'm going to go do something here. But let us go to him, he says. Verse 16. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. So how's he taking this death? Figuratively, as a metaphor. He's, they're still not getting. Lazarus is literally dead. The disciples just don't, aren't tracking, but that's okay. Because remember, how would you and I have responded to that? The same way, right? Because who raises the dead? Man doesn't. They're just not clicking yet. That's all right. So now we see them in verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. So he hears about his illness. Two days later, he, he says, let's go. Two days later, they arrive at Bethany. Okay, so just the timeline. And he's found out, oh, he's already been in the tomb. So basically, he died and then Jesus said, let's go. So it was a four-day interval. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Okay, well-known family, people were there to console them. They knew he was dead. This wasn't a fake death. This wasn't him fainting. This wasn't coma. He was dead. How dead? He was in a tomb. Tombs, rock, hot weather, enclosed, and he's been in there four days. How long can you survive without water? Maybe three days. He's dead. Okay? So, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my, mother, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha, not Totally getting the point, but that's okay. Her theology wasn't bad here. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Well, talk about the great question of all time. Do you believe Jesus is the resurrection and the life? And if you believe in him, you will have eternal life. There it is, right? Great question. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. She hasn't connected what he's saying to what's going to happen to her brother, but that's okay. Verse 28. 
When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she, meaning Mary, heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Bethany was a small village, so he's on the outskirts, but that's not very far. It's just a little village, but he's still not in front of the house or at the tomb yet. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. They're going to go console her and weep along with her. Verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus and to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now look, look what happens here. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, what a powerful verse. It's so few words. Jesus wept. Our, our, our compassion of our Savior, our Redeemer, right? Don't miss that. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Boy, the stage is being set. Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So he's about to do something that's to put God and his glory on full display. Okay? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up to his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you, would, that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. Why? That they may believe that you sent me. Keep that in mind later. Verse 43. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face uh, wrapped in a, with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. <laughs> he didn't dance around, perform any tricks. He said, Lazarus, come on, come on out. Here's the deal. What he, didn't, what he did there was not supernatural. What he did there was to go against the unnatural. Death, death was not part of God's design before sin. He was restoring the natural. Yes, it was a supernatural miracle, but I want you to catch that. Here's the creator restoring creation. So amazing. Now listen to this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. <laughs> How could you not? But, oh, there it is. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Did they believe? No, they would have believed. They would have stayed there. This guy's just proved he was God. <laughs> 
So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. You understand here, this is a big turning point in John because the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't like each other. They were enemies, but here we see them colluding around a common enemy, as was prophesied. They gathered the council, the Sanhedrin, and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. <laughs> everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What were they concerned about? Their, their power, their status, their place. Oh, my goodness. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Wow. Setting the stage for the substitute. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Wow. By the way, this is the same Caiaphas who's in our story in Acts chapter 5. This happened just a few months before what's happening. So just this is, this is just to keep in mind what's going on there. Jesus' miracles were amazing and powerful, and yet some didn't believe. We're going to talk about why. This is, this is one of those stories that just jumped out to me that also wanted me to say, wait a second, I have to address my own heart here. And, and I want us to do that here tonight. Also, you know, in verse, chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, listen to what else? Their, their further blindness and hard-heartedness. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. <laughs> Word got out. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. <laughs> oh, How could they dismiss and ignore the obvious power of God? How could people not see and believe in this amazing Jesus? I read this and I also see in Acts 5 where I'm asking the same question. How could they not see the obvious power of God in Acts 2, in Acts 3? In Acts 5, miracles, power, proof. So what can we learn from this? Besides just going through the narrative and seeing what happens, I wanted to take some time because this is one of those things that should jump out of us, at us and make us ask some questions. This is a narrative text. This is describing what had happened, but we have to check our theology a little bit and do a little heart check as well. What, what does this say about the proclamation and reception of the gospel? What does it say about people's ability to believe and our responsibility to save them? Is it up to our techniques? Just gotta, what is it? What's going on here? What about our own pride? How did we respond to the gospel? How long did we reject it before we responded to the gospel? What does it say about God's incredible mercy and amazing grace? What does it say? 
So I want to I dig into that. So I wanna, as we look in this passage tonight, it's another, again, it's another snapshot of the growing church. It's, this is not all that happened in those first few months. We're just getting, getting selections. And really, we see Satan's strategy is to attack this young church. He did it by persecution after the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate. All right, and that was in Acts chapter 3, and we saw the response in Acts chapter 4 of the, of the religious establishment. Right? And that's Satan's strategy, attack the church. So this external persecution, it didn't work. <laughs> you know, after, after Peter and John are released from prison, what happens? The, the rest of the church prays and is praising God. God, give us more boldness. And it says the spirit descended and, and the building shook. And what did they do? They went out preaching. So they, they responded with more aggressiveness and joy in the Lord, despite the persecution. Plan, uh, strategy number one, foiled, right? God's still in charge of his church. Then we have the second attack, and that's what we looked at last week. The second attack was what? Internal, right? Well, when we mean internal, what does that mean? Yeah, it's from amongst the church, right? And, that's, and there it, was, it wasn't, there was not persecution per se, it was what? What was the main issue being dealt with there? Deceit, hypocrisy, right? The desire for status. Oh, we'll give just like Barnabas did and look at us. And, and, you know, and the wife shows up, you know, Sapphira shows up a little bit later, you know. Hey, he'll, he'll, he'll donate and we'll look good, but I'll arrive later and look really good, right? Ananias, what did his name mean? The grace of God. Before that, we have to remember that great grace was upon the whole church, but then here's Ananias, and he comes along, he's, his name means the grace of God, and yet what he did was graceless, right? It was a mockery of God's grace. And then Sapphira, her name means sapphire or beautiful, and yet their actions were ugly. And sin is ugly, and it was, it was a threat to the church. So what does God do? <laughs> he purges the church, right? And what was the response, there's twice it was mentioned, what was the response to the, in the early church? The great, it was said there was, and great fear fell upon them all. And we think about death and, and that, and what happens? You're like, whoa, this is, talk about anti-church growth. <laughs> but what happens? We actually see, and that's in our passage tonight, we actually see that the church grows again. God protecting his church, protecting the purity of the church. And, and despite the, the scary act, it's still, it was just like, whoa, God is at work here. And it was attractive. People were added to the church. But I want to see in the midst of this, right, to, to see that we all have need of God's intervention for our eternal salvation. To save all who are blind to the glorious light of the salvation in Jesus Christ. Before we start pointing fingers at the high priest and the Sadducees and the temple guard and all those with them and others who had done the same, before we start pointing fingers, we better recognize that we needed God to open our eyes too. Yet for the grace of God, there go I. I'd be the same way. So we can't miss this in here. And we do need to realize what happens. All right, so, so all of us, you know, without God taking the initiative, we're in trouble. So I want, to, I want us to see that in the story tonight just to, to reflect on it, and we'll finish up the rest of it next week. 
Um, but I, I do want our praise and thankfulness. This isn't just a, oh, there, there go I. It should result in, oh my goodness, God in his mercy saved me. And we read about how great thou art. When I, should, should, when, when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I can scarce take it in. That on the cross, my burden of sin, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And the response is, how great thou art. And that's what I want our response to be. Well, I can't make you feel that way, but I certainly think we should. That God in his greatness would condescend sending his son to show us mercy because of his amazing grace, right? So let's, let's go through this. We're just going to, again, we're only get to uh, the first few verses of this passage tonight, but the, we are going to look at, first of all, the, the state of the church after the incident with Ananias and Sapphira. So we're in chapter 5 now of Acts in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, Right? So it's not just Peter and John here, it's the, all the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. And you're like, well, why do they say that? Well, that's exactly where the, the last external threat had happened. After he healed the blind man, or the, blind, the man who was lame in Acts chapter 3, he was by the beautiful gate that led to the temple. They healed him, they went in, they came out, and then the crowds followed him over to Solomon's portico. It's all on top of the Temple Mount Plaza. It's one corner, it's one section. They called, it's where a lot of teaching was done. And it seems like, well, this is where the church would gather. Because it said it was, they were on the temple day by day. So this sounds like the place that they would regularly be. So the people knew where to go. So they're there at Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them. Talk about that. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. What? The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. All healed. Not one or two from a, a phantom back injury or a toothache. <laughs> the lame. They, they were laid on cots, and, and, and they had to be carried there. People who couldn't, be, they couldn't take care of themselves. And the demon possessed, and his shadow would go as he's walking by. And was it because Peter was so great? No, it's who he was proclaiming that was so great. We see that constantly. We've already seen it here in, in Acts, that the man and his message was authenticated by the miracles. The purpose of the miracles were always to say, listen to them. They have authority. God is at work here. And these were, what kind of miracles were these? Public? Again, I keep saying this because it was, it was stronger in the past in our country, but there was a great movement talking about these faith healers and all this, and yet when it came down to where's the proof, it was hard to find. Now, do I, do I believe that God can heal? Yes. Do people get healed? Yes. But do, do, are there people who have the gifts of healings that go around and doing what, do what's being done here? 
No. This is a special time in the church. This new message is getting out Jesus is God. The crucified son of God who rose from the dead. This is a message. And there's competing messages in Israel. There's competing pretenders. Matter of fact, it's in this passage. Gamaliel talks about two of them that had been in the recent history of Israel. So they they were coming with this message saying, yeah, the man crucified. Oh, Deuteronomy says he's under the curse of God. Well, actually, that was God's plan because he fulfilled Isaiah 53 where God placed the sins upon him and crushed him for those sins. And, but then he rose from the dead just like was prophesied. That message, again, you guys understand, well, we saw the disciples didn't even get it, and they spent three years with Jesus. So we see in Acts, Jesus is God. He's risen from the dead. He's the promised Messiah. You crucified him. Yes, you're in trouble. You're condemned, but you can be forgiven if what? You repent and believe. Well, that that. How do you know if that's true? Well, these miracles were to authenticate, yes, this is true. So this is what's happening. This is the amazing works of God. We had great fear in, in the situation with Ananias and Sapphira. But now we have fear still because it does say here that none, none of the rest dare join them. And different people, you know, there's several, like, four different ways to translate. But I, I take it to mean that they held them in high esteem, the, other, the, the non-believers. But they were also a little bit afraid. I would be too. Ananias and Sapphira got killed, right? God was God's judgment. I would be scared. And if I'm a Christian, you know what I'm doing? I'm doing some serious gut checks at that point. There's, there was the, the unsaved public have a reaction. There's high esteem, but some of them are repelled. And by the way, folks, we, we should expect that. Jesus said, hey, they've hated me. They're going to hate you, right? That's, you should expect that. But we have other passages. Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16 says this. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. It's a picture of a Roman victory march. Prisoners go first, but there's also incense being waved and flowers, and the army, conquering army comes, and the emperor's at the end. It's the grand returning to the capital we just conquered. And he's using that metaphor. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death. The same people marching in the same victory march led by the emperor, but some people don't smell victory, they smell death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So there's going to be a different reaction Right? Just because we're going to proclaim the truth does not mean we're going to get everyone saying, wow, that's great. But we see it here in this Acts passage. 1 Peter uh, 2, 6 through 8. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, The stone is not a precious cornerstone. Instead, it's the stone that the builders rejected, 
has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You see that? There will be different polar reactions to this gospel we proclaim. And here in Acts, these amazing miracles, to some it doesn't matter. To some it doesn't matter. And we're going to talk about why. We're going to talk about why. So great power, the evidence of the Spirit that, you know, the, after the, the, you know, the first persecution and, and there's these, the believers, they hear the report from, the, from Peter and John. And they're like, yeah, God, give us the strength to do it and help us to be bold. They didn't pray for the end of persecution. They prayed for boldness. What it says, the, the building shook. <laughs> and what happens? We see the Spirit is on the move here. It, it, we see it in the, apostles, in, this, in the apostles' authority, the authenticity of, of Jesus' powerful name, the power to bless others. Notice they were using their power, not for personal gain, but for what? To, to advance the claim of Christ, but it was a blessing to others. Don't think about that. When someone has power, they think, wow, what, how can I utilize this to you know, accumulate my kind of stuff, my kind of riches. That's not what happens when the power of the Spirit's movement is to bless others, to hear the name of Christ, to be saved, to see people set free. Amazing. Great power. Great unity. It says they were all together, the church was. They're in the temple plaza. And it was the same reaction after the healing of the lame man. They were there to, to learn and to be together. There was great esteem the people, the, this, that word the people is mentioned three times in this passage. It says it wasn't just the church that was experiencing this. This was the people of Jerusalem. And people from surrounding cities wanted in on this. What's going on? And so surrounding cities were sending people. There was the jo joyful conversion of some, uh, but the others were like, ooh, I don't know about this. I don't blame them in one sense. But I tell you what, no one dared to be uh, fraudulently joined the church. Think about that. <laughs> Ananias and Sapphira, they suffered. But they were held, the, the church and the apostles were held in high esteem to the purity, the unity, the testimony of this church, and the power being displayed. Understand, in the Jewish mind, sick people were considered unclean, especially demonized people, very unclean. These are unclean spirits. And yet what was happening when Jesus was around, he healed the sick and, and the demonized. And now here's Peter, he's walking by and his shadow is doing that. You guys, the, the power to see the, and again, in a culture that's all about clean, unclean, to see that the power of Jesus' name to change lives and to radically uh, face the physically ill and the spiritually ill to see cleanness, healing. It's just amazing. Remember, we have to be there. This is a narrative that's, that's meant to take us. These are brothers and sisters just like us. Again, they didn't dress the same. They didn't speak the same language. They didn't sit in chairs like this. But you know what? They felt the same. They looked the same. They had the same hopes and dreams. So what they're experiencing, imagine how you would experience this. What would you have done, right? What would you have done? And there's great growth. <laughs> there's, <laughs> again, think about this. How, how in the world, if we're dreaming up, how can we grow our church and, and we do whatever it takes to purify the church and to call out sin, 
Now, I'm not saying we try to kill people. That's what God did through the apostles. But is that, does that seem like a good method for growing a church? <laughs> We're thinking better advertising, slick, you know, flyers, really good sound system and lights, and make sure you, none of those things are necessarily bad, but how does God grow his church? Through the fearless, faithful proclamation of the gospel. People being faithful, and, and, and it's a unified church where they're all together hungering to learn. And how did they treat each other? We've already read about this. How did they treat each other? How did they treat? You say, well, but how do we know? What was the evidence? Think about what we've already read. They shared. They sold stuff to take care of each other. They, did, they were selling houses and property. Wow. What evidence of the movement of God in changing lives and changing hearts and we're not just talking about, hey, this is a really cool club to be a part of. People were so overwhelmed by the love of God in Christ Jesus that they didn't care about that which we hold on to the most, property. Why do we hold on to property in homes? Because that's our security. That's what's going to take us through old age. That's our investments. And what did they do with that? They sold. Now, remember, they didn't sell everything. You know, some sold and, you know, but the people still had homes. They took care of each other, but some who could have just held on because that's their nest egg maybe. Well, they wanted to help first. They cared so much about each other. There's, what a transformation. Great unity, great esteem, great growth, great power in public. In the church, it was used to purify. I mean, that was powerful what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They didn't get hit by anything. They didn't get shot. They fell down dead because they tried to deceive the, or they tried to lie to the Holy Spirit. Well, that's, that's powerful. But then we can see the power over the unclean. I've already talked about that. So the evidence was unmistakable. <laughs> it was obvious. It was irrefutable. It was in plain sight publicly. Don't, don't miss this. Don't miss what's happening here. So what's the reaction? Well, the Lord was adding to the, to the church. So people were converted, but now we have a reaction here. Peter and the apostles disregarded the Sanhedrin's charge to not preach in his name. That's Acts chapter 4, right? So the response now comes with greater intensity. That's what we see starting in verse 17 all the way through 40, but we're only to cover a couple of verses. But the high priest rose up. And all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. <laughs> well, now, we know this is Caiaphas later, but so it's the same man from John 11, who after the death, of, the death and resurrection of Lazarus, uh, he made the prophecy, one man should die for the nation, right? And then the crucifixion happens, but then the resurrection happens. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, just generally as their theology. And that happens. And, and now they're preaching Jesus and the resurrection, right? And, and so now, and they've got these miracles that are irrefutable. The religious leaders, what did they have? They had the actual copies of, of the Hebrew, of the scriptures. Remember, they, they didn't have Bibles on every corner like we do. Some of us have 20 Bibles at home, some of us more, if you have computer Bibles like I do, they, they had to have copies that were very, very much protected. They were precious. And who had them? Do you, 
The Sadducees and the high priest, they were in charge of the temple. They had access to God's word. They had privilege and status in Jewish society. They were in charge of the one place that you were allowed to worship the true God of the whole universe, the Temple Mount. Now, after Jesus came, that that changed. But don't forget the privilege they had, the access, the, uh, the, the understanding even of God's word. Okay? I'm not saying they're perfect, but, but don't look at who is responding like this. Okay? So persecution in, in chapter 4, that was the first wave. It, it was the priests in general, and it was in reaction to this miracle and then the powerful teaching and preaching of Christ's resurrection. That's, that what, caused, that's what caused the first wave. Here, actually, that first one, it was they were going to lose their place of prominence with the people because the apostles were, taught, were preaching the resurrection, and the Sadducees didn't believe in that. They taught there wasn't a resurrection. Peter and John were detained in chapter 4. Here now, the apostles are detained. So the, the persecution is intensifying, all right? So here, it's in the high priest is now the one leading the way. It wasn't just the priests in general who said, okay, we got to do something. Now it's the high priest. This is the big man, all right? And here, it's in response to the powerful miracles that proved their authority. It contradicted the power that the high priest and Sadducees had by control over the temple because where were these miracles happening? Where was this teaching happening? On their turf, so there's, there's an intensification and the consequences are intensifying and we'll see soon it's going to intensify even more with the first martyr of Stephen in coming chapters. But again, their reaction, <laughs> their reaction shows, I've already read about this, about that this aroma of Christ, the victory of Christ, it was to, to them, it was from death to death. It was not a, a, an aroma that was pleasant. They reacted against it. They were stumbling over the rock of offense. His response and the rest of the Sadducees uh, revealed a continuing blindness and jealousy. All those with him, the high priest, they, 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 they were political. They wanted control. They wanted power. They were deaf to the preaching. All right? And, and this, I'm using that because in Isaiah, in Isaiah's call to ministry... All right. He 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 meets the the reigning the the sovereign Lord in the temple. I mean, he's he's taken to the temple in the vision, and he sees the the Lord high and lifted up. You know, he's being praised. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty by these cherubim, these mighty angels of the temple, shaking. There's smoke filling the temple, and he cries out, "Woe is me." He pronounces doom on himself. Isaiah was the most righteous man in Israel at that time. And yet he saw the Lord. He cried out, woe is me. I'm undone. He blows. He says, I should blow up. I am undone at seeing at the holy, the holy righteous God. And then we see that, the, that God forgives him of his sin. That's the picture of the, you know, the coal on the, the lips. Actually, first Isaiah says, I, I'm a man uh, with unclean lips who lives in the people of unclean lips. We are all wicked. So God forgives him and then says, hey, uh, who, I have need of someone to go. Right? Who will go for me, God says. And then Isaiah says, well, here am I, send me. Remember that phrase, right? But listen to what he says after this. 
God says this to Isaiah in Isaiah 6, 9. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Jesus used this same phrasing to talk about why he used parables. Parables were judgment from God on hard-hearted people, the hard-hearted Jews. The disciples had asked him, Jesus, why are you using parables to teach these things? He says, because, and then he quotes Isaiah. It was an act of judgment on people. They were hard-hearted, and God was going to blind them and make them deaf for their response, lack of response to God. The same thing's happening right here. The high priest, who should have recognized the Messiah, should have recognized the type of power, the type of healings are on display that can only be explained as from God. And yet they weren't. They were deaf to the preaching. They were blind to the proof, blind to the person of Jesus Christ. Jealous of their popularity. They weren't concerned about the message. They were concerned about the popularity and the power of these apostles and the response of the people. <laughs> Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, when we get to, when in, his, in his defense, his, his proclamation to them, he, he mentions the same kind of jealousy uh, in, in reference to the brothers of Joseph. They were jealous and did an evil act. They were jealous of Joseph. He mentions it's, uh, this jealousy is, is mentioned by Paul about his Jewish opponents in, in the Galatian region and also in Thessalonica. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Jealousy in their hearts. They couldn't hear the real message. They couldn't respond to the proof because they were jealous and they wanted what they wanted. Want power, want prestige, how dare you? That's just amazing. But folks, how about you and me? I'm not saying we're the high priest, but don't we have hearts that are kind of like this? You ever struggle with jealousy? You ever miss the point because you can't see past what you want? It's just something to think about. So I really do want us to, to consider this, what do the spirits, what, what the spiritually blind religious leaders, what do they teach us about ourselves? Folks, we need to be humble when we read this. We need to be humble. Their response in fighting against the, the advance of God is a vivid demonstration of the need for all mankind for God's intervention. You, me, None of us chose to be saved because we're smarter and more righteous. We have to come to grips with that. This is not to condemn, you know, make you feel bad. It's like we just have to know what God's reality is. Because if we get, the, if we get it all wrong and think we're so great, we're going to miss the point. We need to understand what God says about us because what he says is what the truth is. And when we know his truth, then we have hope. Otherwise, we're just deceiving ourselves. Again, before we launch into some other stuff, it's so interesting. I preached through Matthew a few years ago at Bridgemore Park, and 
I thought it was so interesting the way that Matthew would structure the, the life of Christ. And just before Jesus comes up from Jericho, which is down really low in elevation, comes up to Jerusalem, he's in Jericho, this, this ancient pagan city that was conquered. But there we have crowds, but then there was two blind, physically blind men that when Jesus came by, they cried out, Son of David! They were spiritually or physically blind, but they could spiritually see. And the next scene is that Jesus is coming in and it's his, it's his great entrance, you know, the triumphal entry of Christ. And there we have people calling out. The crowds recognize the Messiah. Now, they missed the point too, but, but they're still not as, as blind as what happens later because upon Jesus entering into Jerusalem going down from Bethany, down the, all of it to the valley where the Garden of Gethsemane is. You go straight up. It's, it's a two-mile walk. Okay? And he enters the temple. And, and what happens there is that the crowds are crying out, and Jesus surveys the temple, and then the Pharisees say, hey, hey, tell the kids to stop saying this. You know what the kids were saying? Hosanna to the son of David. Children, untaught children, ignorant masses, saw Jesus for who he was. Not perfectly, but then the religious leaders who were the most taught, the most power, the most prestige, were the most spiritually blind. Now, folks, again, this is, that's another thing that you just notice in reading. This is in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 20, the end of 20 into chapter 21. The religious leaders were blind. They were taught, they were educated, but goes, I'm looking at educated people too. Right here, right here. I can be spiritually blind. How about you? Right? Wow. A quick aside about the Jews and their reaction to Jesus. Right? I, just, I go to Romans chapter 11 for, for help there. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And he goes on to say, look, God still has a plan for the Jews. He has a remnant. He'll protect them, right? But, but we see the leaders of the Jews rejecting him and a good chunk of them. But there is hope because God will save them, according to Zechariah 12 and then the end of Romans 11 as well. But don't miss this. The Jews had, and especially the religious leaders, had special favor from God. People ask, well, does God play favorites? The answer is yes, are his favorites? Well, the Jews and those his elect. Okay? Again, this is we have to say this because it's in Scripture, and we have to start wrestling with some of these concepts. And this is going to be a whole sermon on election and predestination, but it certainly touches on it. The majority of these covenant people rejected Jesus. And this is not permission for us to point at them and saying, well, how sinful, how ignorant, how rebellious. Rather, it should make us take a hard look at our own hearts. If you're a Christian, that means God has opened your eyes. But what is your attitude towards the unsaved? <laughs> Don't forget, we get prideful really quick. We have to, and I love that phrase, yet for the grace of God, there go I. We need God's intervention too. He, he, Paul severely chastises any Gentiles who would say that about the Jews. 
He says, don't be arrogant towards them, right? Don't become, become proud, but fear. God is the one who's in charge of salvation, and he's the one to be feared. And don't we ever take the position that I'm more wise and look how ignorant or sinful they are. He says, don't be proud, but fear. Humility is what is required of us while we read this, read of the hard-heartedness of the high priest and the Sadducees. And we have to readily confess, too, that our hearts are desperately wicked. Now, am I just pulling that out of nowhere? No, that's what the Bible says, right? Uh, Jeremiah 17, John, or Jeremiah 13, Romans 3, 9 through 20. Talk about an indictment. But I'll just read Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? <laughs> We're really good at deceiving ourselves even, right? Rationalizing sin, justifying our actions. But who can understand it? Well, verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Woe. If God does intervene, what I deserve for what's in my heart and my thoughts and my actions, I would be reaping a whirlwind of hurt, of eternity of hurt. But thankfully, God intervenes. But I'm not there yet. Let's keep them. It says that our hearts are at war with God. James 4, 1 through 6, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived by natures of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's not a very pretty picture, but that's an accurate picture of us before Christ. That's why verse 4 is so important. But God, who is rich in mercy, right? But 1 through 3 applies to us. We were dead and at war, hostile to God, Romans 5. So we, we, have, we have so far hearts that are desperately wicked, hearts at war with God. <laughs> How do you like my sermon tonight, huh? So encouraging, Chris. You're just like Barnabas, someone said to me last week. But sometimes we, we need the hard truth. We do. We, are, we have hearts that are in need of God's grace and mercy. Right? Ephesians 2, I've already talked about 2, 4, but verses 7 through 9. So that in the coming ages he might show them immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. We need God's grace and mercy. We need it or we're dust. We have hearts that are in need of the gift of regeneration. John 3, 1 Peter 1. I'll just read John 3, 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you. He's talking to Nicodemus. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And what does Nicodemus say? Uh, how can you go? Yeah, I don't know how you did that physically. And Jesus says, look, we're talking about the spirit here. You have to be born of the spirit. Right? It's a spiritual rebirth. We need the spirit to do something. We need him to regenerate us, rebirth us. We need the gift of sight. 
2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. And even if our, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We need to be able to see that can only be given by God. Because otherwise we're blinded and we can't unblind ourselves. We need God to show the light of salvation in Jesus Christ. We need the gift of repentance. 2 Timothy 2.25 Correcting his opponents, talking about a pastor, to correct his opponents with gentleness, so that, why? So that God may perhaps grant them, grant means gift, grant them repentance, that God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Folks, we need him to gift us repentance, the ability to repent. We need need him to open our eyes. We need him to give us a heart that can respond. (laughs) And we need the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Folks, all these are gifts. All these things are given. What, what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, uh, what is it the result of? Our works? No, it's God's. So that no one may boast. So when we see them, we see these Pharisees, we see these Sadducees, we see these hard-hearted responses. They're blind, they're deaf. Folks, Without God intervening, that is us. But, but God, who is rich in mercy. So what's our response to this? I've already, already come down saying, yes, here's all the bad part, right? But it's really, it should, it should cause us to respond with, with awe and thanksgiving. We don't know who God's going to say. We don't know all the ins and outs, right? The, the, the things of mystery belong to the Lord, but what is known we need to obey. De- Deuteronomy 29, 29, it just brutalized that passage, but you get it. There's, we don't understand everything. We can't. But what we do know is that God is good. And God is, he sent his son to die for us. We should be overwhelmed at his mercy towards us who believe. And let's look at Paul's response at the end of chapter 11. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? The point is no one can be his counselor. No one can understand him fully. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. That's Paul's response after 11 full chapters of the theology of the grace of God in bringing salvation to people who don't deserve it. Amazing. So we should worship. This should cause us to worship God. It should cause worship with hearts of gratitude and lives of joyful obedience. I get to love him and follow him? Are you kidding me? I get to serve him. I get to go to church early and set up chairs. Yes! I get to go work in the nursery and let child, you know, these kids snot on me. Yes! Because their mom and dad can go to church and hear about Jesus. 
I get to serve the Lord. And we want others to know this amazing God and to be saved and then to join us in worship. Isn't that what the early church did? Persecution, yes! We get to suffer for the name of Christ. Let's go tell more. Why? So they can join us in this salvation. So we need to be like them, faithful to proclaim to all. Not just the people who like us. Matter of fact, there's people who can reject us at first who might get saved later. Where do I get that from? Oh, Nicodemus. I read from John chapter 3. He didn't get it. Jesus says, hey, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand this stuff. And then he fades from the scene. But then later on, we see Nicodemus joining Joseph of Arimathea to collect the body of Jesus. Oh, we find out Nicodemus was on the Sanhedrin. And yet he associated himself as a follower of Christ to take the precious body of Jesus. He became a follower. Saul, we're going to see him pretty soon here. He's part of the Sanhedrin. He learned under, under Gamaliel. Gamaliel is in this chapter. He'll be speaking for us soon. Paul was theirs. As he learned under him. Matter of fact, Paul is one of the ringleaders of the stoning of Stephen. That happened very, very soon after this. And yet what happens? He later, and he was a persecutor of the church, and yet later he becomes the greatest missionary, scripture writer of all time. So you can't tell if they're elect or not. So who do you proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to? Anyone who comes in your path, your neighbors, your friends, don't hide it because you don't know. They may reject you now, but it could happen next week, next year, 10 years, 20 years. Is it up to you? No, salvation's up to God. But he's called us to be his messengers, the ones he proclaims through. Acts 15 says there were converts from the Pharisees who were part of the early church. They caused some problems, but it's because they were still learning and growing too. So we respond in faithfulness and praise like our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago. We just keep it up. We're just another link in the chain. One of the funnest things to do is when you go on a missions trip around the world to sit in a church service where you can't understand a word. I'm in, I'm in a city in Kazakhstan, and we're at a worship service, and they're singing in Russian. I have zero clue. <laughs> but it was awesome because we're singing praise to the same Jesus Christ, to the same God, and we're going to be in heaven forever with each, with each other. I, I can still remember some of their faces. I know I'm going to see them again. Amazing. That was 20 years ago. <laughs> so I, I'll stop there for tonight. And just, it's just, may we be like the early church who in the midst of persecution was faithful to proclaim, to love the Lord and to just love each other. They did it together. They weren't individuals doing this. They did this together. So I pray that's true of us, right? To get fired up. I know I do this each week, but that's what should, that's the whole point of the book of Acts. Look at what God is doing through the Spirit by the apostles in exploding his kingdom. The message that this, this Jewish rabbi in this little podunk part of the world who claimed to be God rose from the dead. We're going to see it get into Athens, the center of learning. We're going to see it get to Rome, the center of power. And it rocked the world and it's still rocking the world. 
but does it rock our world, you and me? It should, right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together in your word. Thank you for, ah, gosh, this, I'm so glad we have this, uh, this, this story. It's not a story in the sense of mythical. This is real history of brothers and sisters that well, I'll get to meet one day, and I can't wait for that, most of all because I can't wait to be with you. But Lord, I pray that this would spur us on to think deeply, Lord, to, to not just see in, these, in, the, in the reaction of Caiaphas uh, something that's foreign, but uh, I, I see that in my own heart at times. I can be spiritually blind. Now, I thank you for opening my eyes to the gospel, but Lord, I, I do know at times I can be, I can be hard-hearted. I don't want to be that way. I want to be excited about the gospel, about who you are. I want to be in awe of your mercy towards me, thankful for your salvation. And I want everyone to know you are the great God. You are the redeemer. You are the savior. You are the king who's going to return one day. And Lord, so help us to be a people that is making ready for your return, a people who are proclaiming your greatness and your goodness and showing the world that you really change lives and, and, and seeing in how we live and how we love each other here within the church, always to the end to making you look great and glorious, reflecting your glory to a world that needs to see your light. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for our time tonight. Thank you for your word. And, God, may you change us and grow us uh, one day at a time. And, Lord, we, we just long for your return. We do. So we love you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.